Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we have a favor to ask of our listeners. We created a listener survey so that we can get to know all of you a bit better, and we would so appreciate it if you could take a few moments to fill it out. And to entice you to take the survey, we are entering anyone who fills it out into a contest to win a free Grab an t-shirt. Ravi and I each have one. It's a great t-shirt. It's a great conversation starter. Uh, we love it when people tag us on social media in theirs. Uh, and you can get one just for filling out the survey. You'll be entered to win one. So you you visit wondermedianetwork.com slash majority54. It's one wondermedianetwork.com slash majority54. We would really appreciate it if you do this because it is a big part of us making editorial decisions about how we proceed with the podcast in the future. And we want feedback from the listeners so we can give you the product that you're looking for. So thank you for doing it. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. This is a very exciting episode because uh, while we have had Republicans on before, this is the first time that we are actually having on a Republican elected official. And in fact, it is my good friend who is the governor-elect of Utah, Spencer Cox. Uh, Spencer has a very impressive bio that you are all welcome to Google. I will give you my uh, my intro of Spencer, which is that we did a, uh, a thing together several years ago that people who listen to this show may have heard about before, because we've also had Stacey Abrams on, and Stacey was in our class of Rodell Fellows at the Aspen Institute, and it's a great program that brings together people, 12 people uh, from the right, 12 people from the left each year. You cannot apply. They find you, and what they do is they basically find the people who they think will be in leadership positions across the country in the coming years, and they get them to create relationships with one another you know, at that point so that later they can work together. And, uh, and Spencer and I really hit it off. Um, at the time, he had just become the very fresh-faced, wet-behind-the-ears lieutenant governor of Utah, having been plucked from his spot as a brand-new freshman state legislator in uh, in the state house, and made the lieutenant governor. He is a farm kid from a big family who now has a big family and has... I don't want to characterize you, Spencer. I'll let you do that, but I don't want to use you know, political ideological terms, but has certainly been somebody who has been noticed across the country for his interest in working together and in using rhetoric that is not inflammatory uh, and has just become elected governor of Utah. Uh, and uh, and so I'm I'm really excited to have you here. Thanks for doing this. Oh, well, thanks, Jason. I, I'm excited to be back with you. We, we did have a lot of fun in, in, in Aspen. 
Um, it was an incredible class. I, I, I tell people all the time, I, I was blown away at the um, brilliance that we had amongst those 24 people. And I, I'm, I'm not just saying this because you're here or I'm talking to you. I've said it to lots of people, but the two smartest people in that class were um, one person you've already mentioned and, and yourself. And as a Republican who thought he knew everything, it was uh, it was very disturbing to learn that there were some really, really bright Democrats on the other side. I, I say that tongue in cheek, but um, you you and Stacy were, were certainly the, uh, the the cream of the the crop when it comes to that that class, and it's uh, it's been fun to watch both of you what you've uh, you've accomplished over the intervening years, and I'm just grateful we have a chance to uh, to catch up and to chat. Man, I, I really appreciate it. I, you know what stands out to me most about about you in that program is I remember, and I think a lot of us had the same impression because you came across as this sort of like aw shucks. I didn't expect to be in this position of lieutenant governor. I don't even know if I should be doing this. Maybe I should be back on the farm. And like, you know, having been around a lot of politicians, I think at first we were all, and you probably experienced this a lot with people, like people are sort of skeptical, like, is this dude really this earnest? And it, there have been, a, a, I could count on one hand, the amount of people I've met in politics who that was my first impression, who it turned out, yes, they are genuinely that earnest. And that is actually who they are. Uh, and you're one of those people. And I think it's a really refreshing thing. So I think the, be the best way to uh, to start this is with this ad that you and your opponent in the governor's race made uh, just before the election. I'm Chris Peterson. And I'm Spencer Cox. We are currently in the final days of campaigning against each other to be your next governor. And while I think you should vote for me. Yeah, but, but really, you should vote for me. There are some things we both agree on. We can debate issues without degrading each other's character. We can disagree without hating each other. And win or lose in Utah, we work together. So let's show the country that there's a better way. My name's Chris Peterson. And I'm Spencer Cox. And we, we approve, approve this message. You know, you made this ad where the two of you talked about the importance of civility and you talked about the importance also of a peaceful transition, which at that moment uh, turned out, you know, at that moment was a big controversy and it turns out is still somewhat of a controversy. So let's just start with why do you want to make that ad in the first place? And especially, you know, putting that emphasis of on, on civility in Utah, which is a deep red state where you're going to have a super majority for your party in, in both houses. So, you know, you put this emphasis on working together. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I was I was actually talking to a friend and who had uh, expressed some apprehension about what was was going to happen in the in the election, the presidential election, and some concern that uh, as as uh, as this friend put it, you know, if the the right wins, the, the, the left is going to burn it down. And if the left wins, the right's going to shoot it up. Those were those were her words. And uh, it, we were you know, we, we had experienced some civil unrest and I was very disturbed at what, what I was seeing um, from my party. And uh, and so she, she asked the question, she said, isn't there anything that we can do? Um, at least here in Utah, to make sure that whatever happens on November 4th, that, that we accept the, the, the results of the election and that we do so peacefully and that we, we find a way to come together. And, and that just kind of sparked um, my, my thinking. I had had a debate with my opponent and uh, he was a good guy, um, a really talented person, someone I, I, I respected deeply. And after the debate, ironically, our, it was our second debate. And it ended. It was it was the live broadcast debate on, on every channel here in Utah. And uh, two minutes after our debate ended, the first presidential debate began. And you remember what that de debate was like. And we, we were we were kind of talking as we were walking off stage 
uh, about, um, we, we, it was a very civil debate. We had strong disagreements on things, but we were joking about what might happen in the presidential debate and how bad it might be. And it turned out it was far worse than either of us um, anticipated. But I knew he was kind of thinking that way, that civility was important to him and uh, that robust, but, um, but, but, but kind debate. And, and so on a whim, I just called him one Saturday morning. I'd never done that. I, I didn't have his number. I had to ask somebody for it. And I just said, hey, I'm really worried about what's going to happen in our state and our country on November 4th. And he said, yeah, I am too. And I said, what if we did something together? Is that crazy? And he said, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Um, I don't think anybody's ever done anything like that. Let me talk to my uh, let me talk to my um, my team and I'll get back to you. And I said, that's great. Just whatever you think. And, and by the way, I have some ideas. You have full veto power over anything. I'm not going to make you do anything you don't feel comfortable with. And he said, he just said, you know what? I don't need to talk to my team about this. This is the right thing to do. Let's just do it. And so um, two days later, we were in a studio and we, we cut the ads and didn't expect. I mean, we thought it might get some traction here in Utah and maybe a little bit nationally, but it was it was crazy. I mean, internationally, um, it, it's we never experienced anything like that. Two opposing candidates for governor of Utah recently went viral for doing something noticeably different. The opposing candidates running to become Utah's next governor appear together in a series of ads calling for civility in politics. All right. And in less than one day, their message has been viewed by millions of people. Yeah. And Spencer, one thing that's really fascinating about your background is that you had been vocally critical of President Trump pretty early uh, and said, if, if I have it correct, that you weren't going to vote for him in 2016. And, you know, that's just one of many examples of where I think you have bucked the sort of conventional wisdom about what a Republican in a solidly Republican state would be doing. Uh, how challenging has that been for you? Because the reason why I ask is because so many friends of mine who've gone into office uh, and run for office as Republicans have been afraid to do anything but kind of toe the line on issues like that. And so how hard was that, uh, both before you decided to do it, afterwards, and how on earth did you wind up winning the, the governor's office in Utah, a solidly Republican state, having bucked the sort of, the, the, the sort of conventional wisdom within the party? Yeah. So this, this is, it's been hard for Republicans. It just has. I, I mean, I, I, I like to point out that um, Donald Trump. So when, when it was Utah's turn in 2016 in the primaries, we're at the end of the, the line. And so it was down to three candidates at that point that were still left in the race. It was, it was Trump and Ted Cruz and uh, Kasich. I think were the the three that were left, and so I had been a, a Marco Rubio supporter. I'd been very vocal. I'd gone to Nevada and helped campaign for um, Senator Rubio, and and so it was. It, Donald Trump was not popular here in Utah. He finished so so again. This was at the very end when it was pretty clear he was going to win and the, the 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 nomination, and he finished third with like eight percent of the vote amongst. And this was a Republican primary. We did it a little differently that year, but um, that, that was the, the end result. Um, but that being said, he, he won. He won with a plurality in the, in the general, of course, because we are a red state. There were a lot of third-party voters, myself included. And, and, and we knew he was going to win in 2020 in Utah. Um, and, and that's the, that's the, the dynamic. And, and it is hard. And I look, I, I don't, I'm very careful not to criticize other Republicans who have chosen a different route than I did. 
I also felt an obligation, though, once he did win as a Republican to uh, to support wherever I could the the Republican nominee and the fact that he was going to win again and uh, do my best. But um, to also call out where where I disagreed. And and I've done that many times. Um, things that I, I, I felt were, were wrong. Utah is a red state. It's a little different, though, than than many other red states. Um, you know, it, it's it's a state that is much more open to, uh, for example, um, immigration uh, uh, conversations, uh, very open to refugees. We were the one red state that, that kind of bucked the anti-refugee rhetoric that was coming out. Um, we, we, we tend to be much more practical when it comes to solving problems. And, and um, Democrats, although a, a super minority in the state, do very well in our state legislature. They pass a significant number of bills every year, and, and we work on issues together routinely. So so you asked the question, how, how did I, I win? Um, it, it was a weird year in Utah in that we changed the way we elect people uh, a few years ago. Um, it used to be you had to go through a caucus convention system, and at most only two candidates come, could come out and sometimes only one. This year, you could gather signatures as well. We had four incredibly talented uh, people on the ballot. We had one that was very, very, very um, kind of Trumpian, I guess. Um, that was the former Speaker of the House. And I got beat up. I mean, I there were ads and billboards that I didn't support the, the Republican Party and the president. And, uh, you know, I ended up winning with 36 percent of the vote uh, in, in a very close, uh, very close election. So it's uh, it, it's just a, it's just a really tough dynamic that the party's in a place nationally that is very different than our state party. But there are certainly those threads. And I, I you know, I don't have a good answer for uh, for Republicans right now. It's 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 tough. It's we're a very divided party. And it's not the division we expected. We had the Ted Cruz wing versus the Marco Rubio wing of the party. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, we got this kind of Trump wing. And, and uh, I, it's uh, it's an interesting time. You know, I, I know you well enough to know that when, that if there were moments in the campaign, in the primary, where there were people pushing you to go far right or to, to do Trumpian things, as you said, that you were going to stay with who you were and you were going to you were going to stand for what you believe in. But I am wondering whether there were moments where you were able to objectively and clearly identify opportunities where it's like, well, clearly the bright, purely political move here would be for me to say some things that I don't necessarily believe in. Like, I assume that that happened. It's not all just a matter of, well, Utah is a different state politically, right? Yeah, no, it happens all the time. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, you, you've run for office. It's, it's, it's always like, this would be the right thing to do politically. And, and this wouldn't, I, you know, what, what I found though was, and, and I, I love the way you opened the podcast, um, because you're trying to convince people to join your side, right? Um, and, and that's what we've, we've kind of lost. We, we've gotten to this place where we all think that these are immutable characteristics. You're like born a Republican or you're born a Democrat and we have to shut the other side up instead of convince them. And, and that's, the, I, I say that because what, what I, the, the, the piece I kind of made with myself and, and with the party and where things were headed, that it, it didn't do me any good to attack um, the president or the, the people that were, were supporters of him. But what, what I could do is just talk about what I believed and what I stood for. And, you know, just on a, on a, on a personal level, we, we did the, I mean, I, you know, I had campaign, campaign consultants and we did the math and we did the, we, we did all the message testing. And um, my chief opponent, the one that, that I, I beat by one point was- Which um, is the former uh, governor, was, Huntsman. Let's not, let's not skip over the fact that that's a pretty big accomplishment. 
Yeah, f- former governor, um, national name for himself, ran for president. Um, he's he's the son of a billionaire, the the largest philanthropic uh, family in our state. Like unlimited money, unlimited resources, everything you could ever want. Right? Lee comes back. He's the ambassador to Russia. Comes back to run against me. And and so we we had all the message testing. We knew that at, at any moment I could cut. 10 points off his, you know, off, off where, where he was. And we, we had a significant lead. And what happened was um, the, uh, the other candidates kind of ganged up against me uh, because I, I had the lead and it was, it was easy and, and, and they were closer. And so uh, all the negative messaging came against me. And every day we saw my lead slipping away. It was one point and then it was two points and then it was three points. And my 10 point lead was now four points with a week to go. At any time we, we, we had those ads. We could have dropped them. It would have been the political thing to do. It w- certainly would have been the Republican thing to do right now. Um, and I just told myself, no, if that's what it takes, I, I don't want to be governor and uh, somebody else can do this job. And <laughs> we, we, we we pulled it off um, by, you know, again, by 6,000 votes out of 500,000 votes cast. It was it was very close. But I, that's that's just I Abby and I decided a year ago that if we were going to do this, we we're going to do it our way. We hoped that we could inspire people. We purposely decided to run a very specific campaign that included visiting every city and town in Utah. It included doing service projects. It included only positive messaging, no negative messaging, only talking about what we wanted to do, never talking about our opponents. We did that in every debate. And the hope was because uh, politicians and the people that run politics are cowards uh, usually, and they just copy whatever worked. And uh, since the negative stuff has worked so much, that's what everybody does. And we wanted to show that you could run a positive campaign and maybe inspire some other people to get involved who wouldn't otherwise do it and that people would try to copy us. Um, I, I don't know if that's going to be the case, but uh, we're, we're very proud of what we did. Yeah, I hope they do. Yeah. Speaking of people uh, trying to copy you, you are about to take the helm over COVID policy now. Uh, I would be very interested to just hear about what your philosophy is about the right balance for uh, restrictions, mask mandates, et cetera, how that may buck either conventional wisdom within the Republican Party, but also the Democratic Party, because, you know, most of our listeners are Democrats, and it's rare that we get the opportunity to hear um, a philosophical defense of, you know, more conservative or even libertarian ideals as it relates to something like COVID policy um, from somebody who's generally trying to implement it. Yeah, Ravi, this <laughs> this is a, a, another place where it's just impossible, and and uh, everyone thinks they're right and they're all wrong. Um, they're they're we've been trying really hard to strike that balance, and we haven't always got it right, and uh, and 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 I I've yet to find somebody that has. Um, but but I will say a couple things that I think are are really important that we've discovered throughout this. Um, I, I think I, I don't believe in in kind of the mass lockdowns. Um, I, I think that it's it's just n- not maybe because it's um, it, it, it won't stop the virus because I, it, it probably does in some ways. Although there is some uh, debate about about some of those restrictions, um, but because as, as human beings, it's uh, it, it's just impossible to keep people doing that for for long periods of time. And so we're we're all trying to do this this dance. And so where where my side has got it wrong. I, I think over time is on like mask mandates. Um, it's 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 crazy that that ever became political. Um, it 
it's the easiest thing to do. Uh, it, it's it's not an intrusion on our liberty, and it's uh, it, it really is um, the least intrusive way um, to prevent the spread of this illness and protect the economy, which which we all care deeply about. And so that's that's one area where I, I think we we've, we've gotten it really wrong. I will say one area where I think the left has really gotten it wrong is on the schools uh, side and the school closure side. Um, we had Dr. Burks out here um, talking to us about that. We've we've been very good here in Utah trying to get people back in school. We have one school district. We, we're, we're kind of more on the local control side. We have one school district, Salt Lake City School District, that is not um, that has been all online. But we've made sure that every district has options for those that want to stay home or need to stay home, um, that there is a, a remote option for those families. Uh, we've also put in place certain levels where we, we will close a school for two weeks to interrupt if there's mass spread happening in that school to kind of cut it off at the knees and then and then get get kids back as, as soon as we possibly can. We're now implementing significant testing across those schools where we start to see an outbreak. We test to stay open. So we test everyone in the school and uh, try to, uh, you know, remove those that, that are positive. So I, I just think that the, the negative repercussions, especially, and this is what's weird, there, there's an alternate universe out there where it's the left arguing to keep schools open and not the right because the kids that are getting hurt the most are low-income, multicultural uh, kids that are, are, I mean, we have in one school district, you know, we had 3,000 kids that never logged on. And I'm telling you, they're not in the, they're not in the, the upper middle class kids in the avenues. Like that's, that, those aren't the kids that are getting left behind. And so, um, so, so that's, that's really where the struggle is. And then, then there's this middle of, you know, where, where do we kind of pull back when, when things are really, really bad? Uh, Utah was, was one of the worst states in this outbreak uh, a couple, three weeks ago, and our hospitals are very close to getting overwhelmed. Um, we, we did, a, we, we, we did a, what we call the two-week circuit breaker, where the governor put out an emergency alert message where your phones go off and, every, you know, makes everybody mad. And uh, to, to tune in, this was a Sunday night right after NFL football, like three and a half weeks ago. And it was and then a five minute message from the governor on on every station in Utah saying, hey, this is serious. We need you to be careful. Um, we need you to not have people outside your home come into your homes. You know, we didn't shut down any businesses, but we implemented the statewide mask mandate. We had we had mask mandates for most of the state, but this was now ubiquitous statewide. And uh, we 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 did we did a few other things and it worked. I, I mean, it takes two weeks to find out if something works. But a, a week later, our cases stabilized. And then a week after that, we saw a decline heading right into Thanksgiving. And so those are some of the things I think we've done right. But I think I think it has to be limited and uh, and impactful. You can't you know, we, we've kind of messed around around the edges and and that doesn't make a difference. And, and we have too many politicians that um, are, are losing faith with the public because they say one thing and do another. And we've been criticized that that here. Um, we've tried to be really, really careful, but there's, you know, everybody's waiting for you to slip up to not have a mask on in a certain situation and then to call you out as a hypocrite. And, uh, and, you know, we've had I've had um, protesters in, at my personal home with uh, bullhorns, you know, saying we're Hitler because of the you know, these are anti mask protesters uh, that, that have been mostly um, hitting us here. And, and uh, so it's uh, it's tough. What do you think motivates an anti mask protester? Um, you know, we, I talked to them. I, you know, I, I did the crazy thing. I actually, 
Uh, I live 100 miles from the state capital and in on a, on a farm out in the middle of nowhere. And so we don't get visitors very often. So if you're, <laughs> you're going to come come here, we uh, my wife baked cookies and we made hot chocolate and took it out to him. And I talked to him for a few minutes. Um, I told him, you know, I disagreed, but I, you know, I, I, I cared about them. And it's genuine. It's this fear that um, government is getting, you know, too powerful and and is 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 trying to control our lives. And, and it's something I found interesting. And I, I found this at the Rodell Fellowship that, that we were a part of, that uh, uh, people who don't live in the West um, and, and kind of the inner mountain West don't understand or comprehend this, this kind of um, rugged individualism that the West was founded on. And Utah's a little different because of the way we were founded, but it was kind of this every man for himself. And, 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 and that still permeates everything we do. And, uh, it's, it's a real thing. It, it, it can be a good thing. Um, not great in a pandemic, but, uh, but, but in other, other situations, it, it, it can be helpful. So, uh, so I, I think that's what it is. It's, it's, it's a deeply held belief that we sh- we should be personally responsible for ourselves. But what, what's really unique about this illness that makes it different than everything else though, is that you are, um, and I try to point this out to people. It's, it's the least understood piece of this is that you are most contagious two days before you have any symptoms. And so it's not just enough to say, I'm going to take personal responsibility. And if I'm sick, I'm going to stay home and I'm going to take care of myself because you can, you know, two days before you know there's anything wrong with you, you can be hurting someone else. And so from a true libertarian standpoint, you know, where, where my rights end, where yours begin, that's where it gets really messy. And, uh, and that's where I think there is a justification for a mask mandate um, and, and some of the other things that we've been talking about. When it comes to the other things, like the other options, like it doesn't have to be lockdowns, but just restrictions and and all that kind of thing. What is your view on how the current inaction at the federal level on COVID relief and that? Because, you know, a couple of weeks ago we had on the mayor of Kansas City. So different side of the aisle, but similar situation in that he's got to govern a a part of the country and, and make decisions about restrictions without any sort of federal, for lack of a better term, safety net, like, right, if he's going to put in hours restrictions for restaurants, he doesn't have any federal help going to those restaurants. I would imagine that regardless of which party you come from and where you are in the country, you're sort of struggling with the same frustration, I would imagine, with with no help coming out of Washington right now. I could spend an hour just talking about the response from the federal government and and uh, the, the the things they've done right, the things they've done wrong. I've said I've said since June that Operation Warp Speed will go down in history as one of the the greatest accomplishments of any government or or scientists and and, and healthcare systems and all of those things. Um, I, I've also been very adamant of saying our our response, especially on testing will go down as as one of the worst responses of any government in in history. Had we done the same thing with testing that we did with with Operation Warp Speed, we would be in great shape right now. And what you would be doing is you would every one of us would be taking a test every day and then going to our favorite restaurant and going to, you know, an NBA game, an NFL game. That's what we would be doing. And so that that to me is that the biggest the biggest problem now, because we haven't done those things, we're stuck where we are. Um, a- absolutely, um, having some some federal guidance and uh, some federal help when it comes to those specific industries. And and look, we we all know. I mean, it's it's restaurants, bars, and gyms. Like those 
Those are the three where you're much more likely to pass this thing along. And we, if we're going to require them to close, and we haven't here in Utah, I mean, we did originally, but we haven't with this next wave. We do require bars to close at 10 o'clock, which has been a, a little bit controversial. Um, there are some other states, I think New Jersey's done that as well. But if we're going to require that, we should be getting them some help. Well, Jason, one of the downsides of being out of the country for so long is that none of my Netflix or HBO or anything like that works because you can only use those accounts in the United States. But ExpressVPN it allows you to beam back into where you're from and use the accounts that you have if you're traveling. Or if you're in the United States and you want to check out all the international content on a lot of these sites, you could use ExpressVPN and beam into any part of the world to see their library and their collection of content. Obviously, there's a lot of other reasons to use ExpressVPN. Earlier this year, more than 100 Twitter users got their accounts hacked into, passwords, email addresses, phone numbers, and more, all taken from high-profile people like Joe Biden, Elon Musk, Kanye West. These kinds of attacks are getting more frequent and more severe, and it's not just Twitter. Facebook, eBay, Uber, Adobe, Yahoo, they've all had leaked data such as passwords, credit card info, and driver's licenses belonging to billions of users. So if somebody can hack Joe Biden, just imagine how easy it would be for them to hack you. That's why I use ExpressVPN to safeguard my personal data online. It funnels your data through a secure encrypted tunnel so that no matter what device you use, you can have the peace of mind every time you use the internet. And the app connects in just one click. It's lightning fast. And the best part is ExpressVPN works on up to five devices simultaneously so you and your whole family can stay protected. And if you visit expressvpn.com majority54 right now, you could arm yourself with an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash majority54. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash majority54. Visit expressvpn.com slash majority54 to learn more. An extra thing that we wanted to do for you all this holiday season, Headspace gave us a six-month trial when they chose to advertise with us. But we've both already been using Headspace for a long time, so we didn't need it. So we decided to give that special six-month code away to one of our listeners. So send us voicemails with your best questions, and in the new year, we're going to pick our favorite one to gift that trial for free. But if you can't wait till the new year, you can start using Headspace right away if you go to headspace.com slash m54. That voicemail again, by the way, if you want to call, it's 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. There have been a few areas where you have, I don't know if I want to say bucked your party, but certainly sounded different than a lot of people in your party. And and I've watched it closely just because we're friends, you know, everything from a few years ago, it started, I'd say, with uh, with LGBT rights to the way you talk about, and at least, you know, you're a pro-Second Amendment guy, but the way you talk about and think about guns is, is certainly not um, predictable, uh, I would say, for a Republican. And there are other areas as well. You know, you're also somebody who has focused a lot on homelessness. I think you've gone out and actually like slept in the street with people to, to bring uh, awareness to it. And the most recent one is, a lot of people don't know this, in Utah, the lieutenant governor is the secretary of state. The lieutenant governor is the, the chief election official. And you're, as of this moment, you're the governor-elect, you're still the lieutenant governor. You have done a lot to increase voter turnout in Utah. So you've been trying to make it easier to vote, which sadly, I think is sort of, is a alternative view to the mainstream view necessarily among Republican chief election officials. 
And I'm wondering what the pushback on that has been. Yes. Yeah, so um, specifically on that, uh, I, I haven't gotten too much pushback. I've gotten some for sure. But here in Utah, we started vote by mail many years ago. Um, we started out very small in a couple of municipalities and then expanded. And it was an opt in for cities and counties until um, finally, I think in 2018, every county, every city was vote by mail. And, and so we were very well positioned at, um, for, for that and, and excited about it. And we had already worked through much of the, the many of the problems. That, uh, that that people were concerned about coming into this. So uh, so th- there there really hasn't been much pushback um, to that. And uh, I've worked really hard uh, to to get more people to vote, as you mentioned, and to uh, to make sure that people felt safe and secure about our elections. So it, it's weird because, you know, four years ago, I was spending every interview talking about how the Russians didn't hack our elections and how it was all it was all on the up and up and everything was safe and secure. Cure. And and now I've spent, you know, I spend every interview talking about how um, there weren't a bunch of fraudulent ballots and, and trucks that were dumping ballots here and that, you know, there wasn't any type of mass fraud. And so uh, so it's it's been strange to kind of get that whiplash and, and talking about those those things, depending on who's mad about who won. But but to your broader point about um, kind of bucking the trend, I just look, I believe that True conservatism is the thing that will lift people and make people happy. And I'm trying to do the same thing that you're doing. And I'm trying to convince people on your side that what we believe in actually matters. And and I think we've lost our way a little bit as a party um, in that we, first of all, we started accepting every means um, to an end that, you know, the end always justified the means no matter what that was. And I think that's, that's problematic. But, but I also think that, that we forgot the, the reasons that we believe the things we do and just started caring about those ends. And so uh, we, we, we stopped caring about people as much as um, outcomes. Quite frankly, I, I'm worried we're losing a generation of, of, uh, of voters. I mean, my, my kids now, I've got um, two that are voting eligible and a third one that will be next year. And uh, they're, they're not crazy about my party and uh, they're not crazy about Republicans. And um, at, at, the, at the core of conservatism, at least the one I believe in, it's, it really is about opportunity for everyone. And that's why you see me speaking out on LGBTQ issues. And, and our state, we, we, we passed some major, as a red state, major reform protections for LGBTQ community in the workplace and, and uh, in housing. Um, which surprised a lot of people. It's it's why I speak out. I, I believe that 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 historically we were the party of civil rights, and it's why I care deeply about making sure that um, the Latinos and the Black community in Utah um, have a voice. And even if they're not Republicans, they they need to be represented. And so I I don't know what that makes me um, governor. But it makes you governor, it, apparently. <laughs> so good job. <laughs> it just goes back to that thing I've always you know, said, and and I'm not taking credit, like clearly, you know, everybody on this Zoom, everybody on this podcast right now believes it, which is that people will forgive you for believing stuff they don't believe as long as they know you believe it because you care about them. And I think that's what, that's what uh, the people of Utah see in you. Cause I don't know, is it Utahns? I don't know how to say it correctly. 
Utahns. Yeah, right. yeah, Utahns. Wow. That's it. So, <laughs> no, and, and they do. And, and, and Utahns are, um, they, we lead the nation in volunteerism every year. We lead the nation in charitable giving every year. Um, we, we really do care about each other. And, and yes, we're divided and we have our, our problems and our messes, but uh, I, it's, it's a message that resonates here. But what, what I found, kind of looping back to that ad we did with my opponent, um, I found that it doesn't just resonate here that um, Americans are hungry for decency uh, they don't care who it comes from, what party it comes from. That, and not just Americans, but but across the globe. I mean, it, we you know we were doing interviews in the UK and France, and and uh, it's it, it it was really insane. But but it, it resonates. People people are tired of of politics as usual. You now are you're going to be taking over in 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 an era of the Biden administration. What kind of relationship do you expect to have with the Biden administration? Do you have any indication yet from his team? about what it's going to be like to work with them. And uh, is there a permission structure internal to Utah to for both you and uh, Senator Romney, who I think is somebody who uh, certainly is within the Senate culture of the GOP caucus, somebody kind of akin to your sort of independent streak and sort of willingness to, to entertain a more civil discussion. What do you expect from the state of Utah and the Biden administration in terms of what kind of relationship and what kind of collaborative relationship or lack thereof you might have? I'm cautiously optimistic uh, for our relationship with with uh, President Biden. We um, so I, I was lieutenant governor for three years during the the Obama administration, and then four years during the Trump administration, and, and we had a pretty good working relationship with with uh, with President Obama. In fact, Governor Herbert was the uh, the the chair of the uh, National Governors Association at that time, and spent a lot of time with the president, and vice president, and and he actually had a really good relationship with then Vice President Biden. And uh, I, I'm hoping that there's some carryover there. Um, certainly, I, I know that the uh, the Biden administration met with the executive committee of the National Governors Association. My, my governor, Governor Herbert, was on that call, and uh, they really liked what they heard, um, a willingness to reach out and be collaborative. And and so I, I will have, I think, a pretty long leash from Utahns and expectation. It, it's interesting politically here, and maybe it's like this in other states. Um, historically, Utahns have expected their governors to be much more kind of cordial and and working with with the administration, and, and then the members of Congress to be a little more dogmatic and and uh, to kind of fight the fight. Um, where we have traditionally had um, some some really strong disagreements has been over public lands. And again, it's something that people east of the Mississippi really don't understand. But when 70% of your state is owned by the federal government, it leads to a lot of problems. Um, and, and especially because these are in areas that are, are economically repressed. And, and access to those lands is so important for the, the local economy. And so when, when mining and, and logging and, and all of those things go away, and, and traditionally, unfortunately, um, the, the left has, has used this, and it really started with, with Clinton and then, and then the Obama administration, ha- have used these large swaths of public lands that, that are hard for people to comprehend. I mean, we're talking millions of acres, which is bigger than many states. 
with the stroke of a pen can be locked up and, and what that does to the, the people of those communities. Um, and, and, it, it, and it's been done, you know, it's, it's very popular on the left and the fundraising and the environmental communities, but it's very destructive to real people. And, and so that's where we see the, the biggest problems. Um, Trump came in and undid some of those. And uh, it was very well received and very popular here in Utah. And and Biden's already said that um, that he's going to restore some of those those changes that Trump made. So now we're caught in this kind of ping pong match back and forth. Uh, we, we would love to have some some legislation that kind of went through a process and find some consensus and and agree on some things and maybe make some some economic concessions to people in these these small towns. Um, and so that's where we're going to see, I think, the, the biggest friction. I'm hoping we can avoid that. We're trying right now to reach out to the administration, the new incoming administration, and see if we can't work collaboratively um, to uh, to come to some consensus and solutions. But I'm hopeful. I, I really am. And, and we will always try uh, to meet, um, meet in the middle and, and figure out ways to work together. Well, if anybody's going to be able to pull that off, it's you. I, I really appreciate you uh, you doing this, man. And I, I appreciate that you exist in political life. And I wish there were... And I don't mean because like, you know, we are not as ideologically as far apart as, as uh, I am with most of the folks in your... I, I mean, that's nice. But uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, for any primary voters in Utah for re-election, we're still very ideologically far apart, uh, me and Spencer. <laughs> but But it's just, you know, I can see you from where I'm standing at least. But it's not just that. It's like, you are somebody who we need more of, regardless of ideology uh, in all of our politics, which are people who come to questions of policy with the possibility that their preconceived notion could be wrong. And uh, and I think that's a really, really healthy, healthy thing. So I think that the folks who listen to the show will enjoy continuing to follow you uh, as you become governor. So tell them where they can find you on social media because you're a pretty good follow. Well, thanks, Jason. Um, I, I, I'll apologize ahead of time for the Utah Jazz tweets, but um, <laughs> if I if I have to put up with your uh, royal stuff, you can put up with my. <laughs> I actually know um, a fair amount about the Jazz because I follow you. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's at Spencer J. Cox on 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 pretty much everything. Um, I, I I just if I could just briefly to what you said. Um, I about six years ago, I wrote an article about how we've lost humility in politics. And, and I define humility as just the ability to question whether you're right and to, to think that, that that you might be wrong. Judge Learned Hand um, gave a famous speech once about the, that that idea and 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 what it really means to uh, to think that you, that you might be mistaken. And and what what I loved about our interactions um, from from day one and and with Stacy as well and and the other just brilliant people in our cohort was that. Um, that willingness to listen, to learn, not listen to argue or debate. That was, that was one of the foundational um, pieces of, of what we did in that, in that, with that opportunity. But, but more importantly to, to question, you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong on this. Let, let me listen to, listen to somebody that's really smart and um, that then let's engage and, uh, and, and, you know, you changed my mind on a couple things. Um, some things I, I didn't change my mind on and, and, and I was actually able to strengthen my position by understanding the weaknesses in it that you, you were able to point out. And so I, I appreciate your willingness to dialogue with somebody on, on my side of the aisle, because this is the only way we're going to get 
get better if we get proximate to people that are different than us. And, and too often we just shut off the uh, the voices. We unfriend or unfollow anybody who, who sees the world differently than us. And I think that's really dangerous. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, man. Thank you. And, and thanks for doing this. So everybody follow Spencer. Spencer said how to Abby for me. And, uh, you know, everybody remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. And theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.